Well, uh, a special welcome to anyone who might be a guest with us uh, today. My name is John Sherrill. I'm a, I'm a pastor at this church. And it's great to be worshiping with you here in person and, and with you virtually online as well. Uh, we're in the, in the fourth week of a six-week series that's taking us through the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And the series is called The Beginning. And that title is just taken from the very first verse of Mark's Gospel, which says this, The Beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So Mark wrote his gospel for that purpose, to show people that Jesus really was this Messiah that the Jewish people had been expecting for, uh, for many centuries. And um, th- this first chapter includes some big themes that will be prominent throughout Jesus' life. And, and Mark goes through them really quickly. These stories come very, very close upon one another. Week one, we focused on Jesus' identity and temptation. And then week two, we focused on his message, the message he actually shared with people, what he said when he preached, and the disciples, his followers, his apprentices that he called to himself. Last week, we focused on the authority of Jesus. And this week, we look at the way Jesus organized his life around a spiritual family. So let's listen to the scripture today. It comes from Mark chapter one, verses 29 through 34. The word of the Lord from the Gospel of Mark chapter 1 verse 29 through 34. As soon as they left synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. The evening after the sunset, people brought to Jesus the sick and the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus helped many who had virus diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Ryan. Uh, In March of 2020, David Brooks wrote the lead article in The Atlantic, and the article was titled, the nuclear family was a mistake. Fascinating article. Basic premise of that piece was that throughout human history, most every human being everywhere experienced life primarily in an extended family of 20 to 50 people. That that was the basic social group by which people experienced life. Uh, And also throughout history, the meaning of kinship was different than we largely think of it now. We think kind of by blood and birth, people become our kin. But really for the whole course of human history, kinship has meant much more than that. It has meant uh, that that medium-sized group of people that we brought around us. Could be actual family. It might be friends, coworkers, colleagues, and some kind of small business endeavor. But these groups gathered together for the purpose of mutual support and and protection. In in this series that we're in right now, we're taking little chunks of Mark's gospel and kind of looking at them week by week. And the downside to that is you kind of lose track of the flow of the story. So I'd encourage you just to go back and read through Mark 1 a couple times to get the sense of flow. Today's passage began with another one of those little transitional statements that takes us from the, the last story into this story, and that transitional statement is this, as soon as they left the synagogue, 
So there's movement here. Right before this, Jesus and his disciples were in the synagogue in Capernaum. And if you weren't with us last week when we, when we did that story, here's the quick summary. Jesus was the visiting rabbi uh, talking about a piece of scripture in the synagogue on that Sabbath day. And um, people were feeling afraid and alarmed because the scripture says he taught as one who had authority. So as he was kind of talking about the scripture passage, people were hearing it and thinking, well, this isn't sounding like other teachers. This, this has a new feel to it. And then right in the middle of the service, a person from their synagogue stood up and kind of screamed something out at Jesus. Turns out he was possessed by an impure spirit. Jesus told that spirit to be quiet and cast it out of the man. And the guy who was sitting right there in the congregation, his body shook violently and with a shriek, ah, the spirit left the man. So that's a pretty dramatic experience, right? This comes right after that. So just get in touch with kind of the feelings of that story from before. Right after that, as soon as they left the synagogue, this is what they did right after church, right? They went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. They went to the home of Simon and Andrew. Now, in, in the Bible, there's, uh, there's a lot that we don't know about, uh, you know, specific places and times and such. This is not one of those. Uh, archaeological digs have uncovered in the city of Capernaum along the Sea of Galilee this exact location with a very high degree of certainty. So we know exactly where the synagogue was in Capernaum, and we know exactly where the home of Simon and Andrew was. And if you go and visit that site today, you can walk the path from the synagogue to this house. It's not very far. It's like here to the other side of the parking lot. It's like right there. So right after they left the synagogue, they walked to the home of Simon and Andrew. And in the original word, language, that word for home isn't kind of like the way you and I think about a house. You know, we think about a house, and that's where the Sherrills live, John and Crystal and Jack and Tucker, and in another house, the, the Smiths live over there. And back in Jesus' day, a home, uh, an, an oikos, an oikia, was a, a building with multiple rooms, a big central courtyard. Literally, an oikos was a household or extended family or working community. And that whole community of 20 to 50 people lived together in a single structure. And the architecture of Jesus' day supported this family unit. Here's a picture of kind of what a home would look like back in. A, a central courtyard and a bunch of rooms, both for animals and then people would build on rooms. You know, as, as people had children and those children grew up and got married, the, the, the sons of the family would bring their, their new brides back and they would build an extension onto this house, build an extra room on and they would become part of this larger household. Uh, for those of you a little more familiar with the Bible, this is what Jesus was referencing in John 14 when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. The, the image that Jesus was calling to mind there was he was going to God's oikos, God's house like this, and he was gonna build on an extra room just so that he could come and get you and take you to be with him where he was in God's home, God's house. We can live together with God's people. And, that's, and, and Jesus was presenting that, by the way, in, uh, w with regard to death. 
with regard to dying, right? So, so Jesus goes ahead of us and adds on a room to the Father's house and promises that when we die, he'll come back to take us to be with him where he is in the Father's home. So that this, this whole concept was just deeply ingrained in people. It didn't need explanation, kind of like I'm doing now. It was just the way everybody lived. So when, when, uh, uh, when Jesus came into this oikos of Simon and Andrew, this household, something very interesting happened. And it, and it really is based on the, the kind of flow of Jesus' early life. And, and, and again, this is the primary social unit of Jesus' day, right? This group of 20 to 50 people. Uh, but this was not Jesus' primary oikos. Remember, his family lived up in Nazareth. So if you think back to the flow of Jesus' life, maybe you remember this, maybe this is all new for you if, if, if you're newer to the Bible or less familiar with it, but this is the basic flow of Jesus' early life. He was born, then he had to flee to Egypt because King Herod posed a threat. He was killing all the babies around Jesus' age, so Jesus' parents took him to Egypt, and then when they came back, they resettled in Nazareth, which became Jesus' hometown, and Jesus was baptized, and then he went into the wilderness and was tempted, and then not in Mark's gospel, but in the other gospels, we understand that after that testing, Jesus actually went back uh, to Nazareth and began to kind of teach there. But he was rejected because that was his hometown. And everybody kind of looked at him like, well, who's, who's this guy? This is the punk kid who hit the baseball through my window, right? It's, it's that kind of thing. So then Jesus went to Galilee and he was received there. And in this story, you know, he went into a new household. This was Jesus' first interaction with the household of Simon and Andrew. And he had just called them his disciples a few days earlier, so they had invited Jesus to come with them to their home. They had just arrived, and this, this, this oikos in Capernaum was organized around the family fishing business. They were all fishermen. So that, that picture that was on the screen, instead of animals and such, there would have been fishing nets and you know, fish cleaning stations and things like that in, in that home. And it certainly appears from everything that we know that Jesus became a member of this family because as he, as he came to them, they, uh, they welcomed him, they listened to him, and they sought to serve him. They were people of peace to him. So this became his family, his spiritual family now. It's not his actual blood relationship family. And, and more than just being a, a home for him and his, his kind of spiritual family, this oikos, this household, became home base for his whole ministry. I mean, we can see that throughout the Bible. He keeps coming back to this place. It was his center of operation. He invited disciples to follow him, and, and he was inviting them into this spiritual family, you know, into this oikos, this close community of colleagues and friends and, and spiritual, spiritual friends. And that very night, we see from the text we read today that Simon and Andrew's household got their first taste of what it would mean to have Jesus as a part of this household. Look at verse 32 and 33 and 34. That evening after sunset, so remember this is the same day. They were in the synagogue in the morning. Then they came back to the, the home of Simon and Andrew where Jesus healed Simon's mother. And so the sun goes down that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So again, it was just that morning there in the synagogue, 
And very clearly, what happened in the synagogue that morning made its way all the way around town in just a couple hours. I mean, it's a small thing, right? So everybody heard what happened to that guy in the synagogue that morning. And the result was the whole town showed up. They called all of their family from everywhere and had said, come over here. If anyone was struggling with something, they brought them to Jesus. And when they brought them to Jesus, they were bringing him to the gate of that oikos, the outside door to that courtyard of Simon and Andrew's home. Right, so everybody gathered there. And, and this, this is an amazing thing that we can unpack about how Jesus turned the family life outward instead of huddling together for mutual protection. He invited everybody in to, to his household. But the point for us today, uh, the larger point for us today is that Jesus didn't do life alone. He built a spiritual family and lived from that center. And we tend to think, at least I can tend to think, when I read about Jesus, that he was kind of a lone wolf. You know, he was out there confronting all of these challenges by himself and, and trying to proclaim God's kingdom all by himself. And certainly he had experiences where he was very lonely. Uh, but th this author, I think, really nailed it. Jesus was not a lone individual facing the challenges of extending God's kingdom by himself. Jesus did not call his disciples to abandon their families in order to follow him. Quite the contrary, Jesus built a whole new kind of family and invited his followers to carry out his mission as part of that kind of oikos, that kind of household. This new kind of family was not defined primarily by blood or birth, but by covenant relationship with God and kingdom mission for the world. You know, when, when the culture in our country turned toward individualism and began focusing on, focusing on the nuclear family more than this larger extended family, we lost a social structure of profound value. I mean, this, this, that's what that article by David Brooks was all about. And, and it's important, not just because David Brooks wrote about it, it's important because it's what Jesus modeled for us. This is a biblical model for how to do community together. And, and I would argue it doesn't take much effort to kind of survey the horizon to see that people are really hurting because this kind of community is largely gone from our lives today. Think about, think about society as a whole. Think about the kinds of television shows that we've watched over the past decades. For you older folks who remember Cheers, remember Norm? Norm! A, a place where everybody knows your name. A community. That was a group of 20 to 50 people where everybody knew your name. Uh, friends, right, in that decade. Friends that feel much more like family. They're, we do life together. Not just kind of, we walk into each other's apartments, we open each other's fridges. This is full-on life together. Modern family. This is us. I mean, you can just start listing the shows that speak to the deep human desire to belong and to be connected and to be part of a real community, to do life together. See, I think you can see that society is hurting because this experience is largely gone. The church is hurting because this experience is largely gone. I mean, Fuller Theological Seminary out in California created an, an entirely new institute, the Fuller Youth Institute, to chase down the reason why many of our kids who grow up in the church just completely depart the church after high school. 
That number is north of 50% these days. Over 50% of children raised in the church, once they hit high school, turn their backs on the church and never return. This isn't just those that go to college and then come back when they have kids. They leave never to come back. What's going on? Well, what's going on is the kind of community in which faith is best formed is absent from our experience. And it largely becomes mom and dad simply trying to instill this faith in their kids. And there's not enough critical mass of community to assist in that. And this is exactly what the Fuller Institute found out. They wrote a book called Sticky Faith, which said, look, the kids who have significant relationships with you know, maybe three or four or five other adults besides their parents, well, they stick with the church. And I would argue that the problem isn't, uh, uh, I would argue that's a symptom of the problem, not the problem itself. The problem is not, hey, we got to get more adult relationships for our kids and try to develop some kind of artificial community. The problem is the depth of community in which those relationships happen very naturally doesn't exist. That's the problem. See, reclaiming this, this way of meeting as a church is just critically important because without that level of community, without that level of interaction in each other's lives, there are fewer safe places to really explore faith in Jesus. There are fewer safe places to work out unity and diversity, right? To invite into that group of 20 to 50 people, people who aren't like us, and to be in deep community with them, to learn and grow and, and work through the more difficult issues in society. I mean, th this is how uh, Christians might be able to begin creating culture again, rather than simply responding to it. It's massively important. I mean, this, this really was the thought largely that our congregation focused on in 2020, which unfortunately was kind of hijacked by, by COVID, really. But we, we were investing deeply in trying to build community. And, and I hope you remember some of those efforts, the breaking bread effort that our, our good friend, a member of our church and staff member at that time, Jordan Hum, brought together. Um, where we were going to get three households of the church together just to have a meal together, just to begin fostering some level of community. And, and it kind of goes like this. I mean, at, at the low end of commitment, there are gatherings. That was intended to be a gathering. Not a very high commitment, but hopefully you, you gather with people and you get to know them and that starts to whet your appetite for a group where you begin to meet with people with some, some greater regularity and pray for each other and know one another. And hopefully that whets our appetite then for a community where we invest more deeply in life with each other. So kind of three levels of engagement, gr uh, gatherings, groups, and communities, all pointed toward rebuilding this type of community that is available to the church, but of which we are not availing ourselves, right? Whole, whole focus of 2020 was to be helping church feel more like family. How can that work where, you know, my boys know you, not just know about you or know your name, but know your story and your struggles, you know? I mean, that's, that's the thing. That's how faith is formed. 
in the next generation. When we hear other adults share their stories about how the Lord saw them through an incredibly hard time or how we wrestled with our doubts and then came out the other side and said, really? I actually, with my mind, believe that I live in a world where a resurrection has happened and think there's great evidence to support that claim. I mean, right, this is the level that that we're shooting for. So Jesus forged a spiritual family not by birth and blood, but by common ground in being covenant kids, children of God, and an, an invitation to join Jesus in his kingdom work in the world. Covenant and kingdom, the heart of this community, right? This part about how Jesus lived in his spiritual family is our model, and we can begin to behave more like Jesus in this world by investing in that kind of community. It's a very practical thing, um, and it's something we can take a little step at a time toward, right? Followers of Jesus are not called to face the challenges of life alone. We're not called to be independent operators. We're called to do this together, right? The, the three kind of great commissions that Jesus gave, remember, he gave several big commands, not just the great commission. We all probably remember the great commission, go and make disciples. He gave the great commandment, another great commission, really, uh, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love people. That was the second one. Do you know the third one? John 17, the great collaboration. <laughs> Live in unity as sisters and brothers in Christ. Do this thing together. Great commission, great commandment, great collaboration. This was Jesus' vision for his church. When Jesus was on earth, his life was part of a spiritual family that was a tangible expression of God's intent to bless the world through a community of people, through a redemptive community. And if you, if you get to like the level 201 Bible study kind of thing, this is, this is one of the very first things that becomes apparent. When God called Abraham a long time ago, he said, I will bless you so that you and your descendants will be a blessing to the world. Blessed to be a blessing. Remember that? The word holy does not mean super religious and self-righteous. It means set apart for a special purpose. So whenever the Bible talks about God's people as a holy people, it's simply referencing God's intent to build a redemptive community in the world, to join Jesus in his work in the world, to invite everyone everywhere to life in God's home. The oikos, right? that we can do it all together. Every tribe, nation, and tongue, the Bible says. That place where the racial conversation is fully reconciled, right? Everyone is welcome. In everyday life, this redemptive community that God intends for the world can look like for us the kind of spiritual family that Jesus brought together. It's not, it's not a pie in the sky thing. It's, it's actually quite the opposite of that. It's messy. It's, it's, you know, it's dirty diapers and daily struggles and 
hard things, losing a job, but doing that with your support of a community. You know, it's life on life. That's what this looks like. And Jesus is our model, not just for what to believe, but how to live. Right? Jesus lived out his faith in God through a spiritual family. And I believe he intends the same for all of his followers. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? God, thank you for not only your word, but your example. A thank you that you give us a practical illustration of how we might begin to live our lives more like you lived your life when you were here. And we get that we have to translate it to our time and all that, but God, would, would you raise up a, a deeper sense of community among us? Show us those friends and family members who can be part of a larger spiritual family. Form in us the desire for that and work out in us the fruit of that, that not only that faith might be formed in our kids more fully, but that, that we might be a light to the world and a, a welcoming light uh, that, that points people to the depth of your love and your goodness. God, thank you for this. We love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.